it's a dramatic event. And the bulk of the chapter reads like a script with characters and a narrator. So we use scripture as a script and had it read dramatically this morning. And my desire in having it read that way was to insert you into the scene as if you were one of the apostles or the elders in Jerusalem. So when I preached this uh, passage before, back in 2011, I showed a clip from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. Now for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, uh, there's a chapter in the book and a scene from the movie titled The Council of Elrond. And this is a critical point in the first book of the trilogy where the forces of good have discovered that they, they possess the one powerful ring and they must now decide what to do with it, or, or better yet, how to destroy it. So it's at this council that the mission of the Fellowship of the Ring is cast, and that decision shapes the rest of the story as Frodo and his companions set out on a journey that's going to change Middle-earth. And for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, I have put that clip, I think lights come back on here in a minute, there we go. For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, I put that clip in the Bible app um, for you just to to, to re-familiarize yourself with that. Um, It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire trilogy because it's here that the reluctant leader Frodo realizes that he must intervene and take the ring. It's the only way to unite this divided council and advance the mission. He doesn't want to do it. it. The task is overwhelming, but Frodo must intervene. It's the only way to move forward. So as we continue our series on, uh, in Acts on God's kingdom taking shape, our passage today is about another council of critical importance, the Jerusalem Council. However, this, this council isn't mythical. This really happened. And the missional significance of the decisions made by this council were of great importance to the first century, to, to the early church in Acts. And as I shared, as many feel that this is one of the most important things that happens in Acts. And the ramifications of the decisions made by this council reach way into the future and affect the church and even the mission of God today. So we get to be in the room where it happens, so to speak. So like many of you, I watched Hamilton this weekend. uh, And I was struck by that song and and that statement by Aaron Burr where he's talking about Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison uh, were all in a room where it happens, and he wasn't. Uh, We get to be in that room where it happens. So last month I preached uh, from, from chapter 10 of Acts where Peter received a vision from God that he could fellowship and include Gentiles in the mission. And in that vision, God told Peter that he should not call anything unclean that God has made clean. And this vision was confirmed by Cornelius and as a result, Peter, Peter preached the gospel to Gentiles in Caesarea. And if you recall, before he can even finish, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, just as it did the Jews in Acts 2, and um, they received the Spirit. In the next chapter, though, Peter is, is called into account by the church for even entering a Gentile house. But after Peter explains what happens, the apostles understand, and they declare, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Now, the past few weeks, we've, t- we've looked at how Luke documents Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey to the Gentiles in Cyprus, in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. They preached the gospel with great success in these locations. And toward the end of the journey, they returned to Antioch. And this sets the stage for what happens here in chapter 15. Now, scholars feel that as many as 10 to 15 years have passed since... Um, Peter received that vision that we talked about. I talked about last month in Acts 10. So many Gentiles have come to faith 
in Christ. And this, and this creates an issue for some of the Jewish believers, as we're going to see in a moment. Okay, so this is, this is a watershed moment for the New Testament church. It's a fragile moment. It's a moment where Jewish tradition collides with the ethnic and cultural identity. Those things collide. And it's at this point that Luke turns his attention, he turns his focus completely to Paul and to the Gentiles and to the church's expansion into the Gentile cities. We see that in the book of Acts. And we will not hear from Peter again after this chapter. So the decisions made by this council show both the early readers of Luke's letter and us today that God's mission and salvation through grace alone trump all other traditional or cultural values. And our good news this morning is very simple. The good news is God intervenes. God intervenes. So let's dive into this and see how God does that. Verse 1 states, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Now who are these people? They're called Judaizers, and they were Jews, perhaps even Pharisees, who had come to faith in Jesus. However, they still held to the belief that everyone, including the Gentiles, must follow the law of Moses, written in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Luke calls them, he calls them the party of the Pharisees. Elsewhere, Paul, in less flattering terms, calls them the circumcision group. See, the sheer volume of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus was creating an issue for them. They, people were being brought into church through baptism and not circumcision. They were becoming Christians without first becoming Jews. And the Jewish Christians were worried that the foundations of Christianity were being undermined by this influx of Gentiles who had no real understanding of what had come before them. And I guess on one level they might have a right to be worried that's a lot of change for them in a short period of time. But in any case, a group of them arrive in Antioch and they begin teaching that these Gentile Christians should follow the law. And their point is that salvation comes through the people of Israel. So obeying the law of Moses is still vital. Now the issue they raise is the issue of circumcision. So I think it's important that we take some time this morning to elaborate on the details of the covenant sign of circumcision. So here's what we're going to do. So if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you don't know what circumcision is or it's significant for, significance for Israel, I want you to reach out and ask Pastor Jordan, okay? <laughs> he'll, he'll explain it to you. Seriously, though, some of you may notice that this seems a lot like the same event that Paul talks about elsewhere in Galatians 2. There Paul talks about how even Peter himself was swayed by these men into changing his behavior toward the Gentile Christians. And as a result, Paul has to confront, he stands up and publicly rebukes Peter for this. But we do need to stop at this point so we can understand what's at stake here. You know, by saying without circumcision you couldn't be saved, these Jews are going way beyond the facts of Jewish history. And at this point, they're relying more on Jewish tradition and religious practices and they're establishing what it really is a false theology. And they've forgotten that circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant God had made with him. And it was a covenant of grace entered into by faith, as Paul's going to point out in Galatians 3. But see, they, take, they had taken that sign and turned it into a condition of salvation. And that strikes at the heart of the gospel. Paul preached that we are saved through faith alone. And these people are saying, no, that's not enough. You also need to follow the law and be circumcised. Now, providentially, Paul and Barnabas were there 
in Antioch when these Judaizers arrived, and they take them on directly. Verse 2, we're told that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute and debate with them. So, so imagine Paul's frustration. You know, weeks of hard work with these Gentile believers is now being potentially threatened. Here's these Gentiles who are struggling to live into the freedom from the pagan practices that's all they ever knew, and they're now faced with a new kind of bondage, this time to the Jewish law. So the leaders of the Antioch church respond by sending Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to set things straight. And upon their arrival, verse 4 states, they are welcomed by the church. But it seems immediately upon their arrival, the party of the Pharisees, the Judaizers, are quick to speak first, and they raise the issue of the need for the Gentile believers to be circumcised. The apostles and the elders convene. Verse 7 states that there's much discussion. And then we read that Peter speaks. And, and this is significant. And I'm not going to dwell much on Peter's speech, but I, I want to encourage you in your own study to take a hard look at it and then compare it to what Paul writes in Galatians 2. And it seems to me that even though God chose that the Gentiles would first hear the gospel originally from Peter, Paul still had to help Peter see that he's being influenced by, these, by those who held to this Jewish tradition. So that even Peter and even Barnabas had stopped fellowshipping with the Gentiles and eating with them. And, and Paul has to confront them regarding this. But after Peter speaks, the text states in verse 12 that the whole assembly became silent as Barnabas and Paul share about the signs and the wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And then James gets up. And he acknowledges in verse 13 that this whole Gentile mission started with Peter. The NIV states that James said God first intervened, intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And, and that NIV, the word in the NIV that's translated as, as intervene means to take or to lay hold of or, or to take by the hand. And I made the comment last month that there's times it seems that through the power of the Spirit, God has to intervene and kick this young church out of the nest, so to speak. We see that in chapter 2, where the, you know, the disciples are huddled together in the upper room. God intervenes with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and immediately they're thrust into mission. And 3,000 were added to their number that day. So later, Stephen is martyred in chapter 7, and persecution scatters the church, including sending Philip to Samaria. And the gospel is advanced further. And we see God intervening directly in, the, in Saul's conversion on the, on the road to Damascus. And now James referenced what I preached last month, that the Spirit of God intervening in the life of the Apostle Peter and giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, just as it had been given to the Jews in Acts 2. So then in verses 16 through 18, James then reconciles what they're seeing and experiencing to the words of the Old Testament prophets. And James primarily references Amos 9 here, where God says he will restore, at the, restore Israel at the same time including in it those Gentiles who bear his name. You see, James recognizes, he realizes that, that this, just, uh, this isn't an afterthought by God. And this isn't a mistake made by Peter or Paul. But rather, this has always been part of God's plan. For, even foretold by the prophets. Now it appears that James is the one leading this council. So, in fact, James is now perceived as a leader in the New Testament church. So let's be clear on which James this is. This is not James, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples. If you recall, Pastor Stacy shared a couple weeks ago 
that he had been killed by Herod Agrippa. Now this is Jesus' brother, James, who the resurrected Jesus appeared to and is now the leader in the church. Verse 19, James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, however, I think James gets the big picture. He knows that there has to be some compromise and some resolution here for the sake of community. So James lists four things that should be included in this letter. He states in verse 20 that, that we should write to them, telling them that they should abstain by food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So there you go. That seems like a real strange list of things to us today, doesn't it? You know, when I, when I, when I first preached this passage, I spent a good amount of time studying these things and trying to resolve exactly why it was that James would pick these four things. And I read very, very scholarly opinions on whether all four of these things are, are related to cultural fellowship issues, mainly the Gentiles eating kosher food so that the Jews would eat with them, or are these really moral sin issues? And scholars seem to be a bit divided on this. I could spend the remainder of our time laying out all these interpretations in the debate. But in the end, I think the primary reason these things are listed is because I think James has a good picture of the issues that are being created when these Gentile converts are rubbing shoulders with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And he came up with these four things because of culture and context mainly the pagan worship practices that were so prevalent in these Gentile cities. Now, we therefore should, we shouldn't try to apply these four things to every New Testament church, nor to, certainly not to all scenarios today. But that being said, let's briefly take a look at these four things. So, number one, food sacrificed to idols. Now, how do we reconcile that against other parts of Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says that eating food sacrificed to idols doesn't matter? So what's the deal? Does it matter or does it not matter? I think it doesn't matter. But James is wise and he knows that not only for the sake of fellowship with these Jews, but also really to stand apart in this pagan worship culture, these new Gentile believers would be better served to abstain from this. Number two, sexual immorality. I think it is what it is. And like the Ezra, it has to be a moral sin issue. The whole counsel of God through Scripture would agree with this. And I think it's in the list because of the ritual prostitution that was so prevalent in the Gentile and these pagan worship cultures that James feels he has to mention it here. I'm going to take items three and four and treat them together. Meet, uh, the strangled animals and blood. So first off, a couple of Old Testament references. God forbid the intentional eating of blood first to Noah in Genesis 9. All right, and then God gave Levitical direction for how meat should be prepared in Leviticus 17, which included the draining of blood, because as Leviticus 17, 14 says, the life is in the blood. So, so right off hand, we can see why this would be important for the Jews regarding table fellowship. But we also know it's impossible to remove all the blood from meat. You see that when you eat a steak, right? You're still blooded. Even, even, if, you, even if the steak is well done, the blood's there, it's just a different color. Hate to break that to you, well done steak lovers, it's just the truth. Sorry. So, but if the Gentiles are not under the law, why bother with what seems to be reverting to the law of Moses? Again, culture is the issue. And, and this is a little gross, I apologize, but I think the drinking of blood that was so prevalent in these pagan worship practices was an important distinctive for this church. And these new believers needed to stand apart from this 
and be in fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. I think that's why that's specifically included here. And James concludes with his remarks with this statement in verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. And James is saying here that it isn't necessary that we take upon ourselves the burden of teaching all these Gentiles, the Gentiles, the intricacies of the law. You know, that isn't our mission. If they want to know this stuff so they can be better in better fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters or due to some practical application, they can learn that in any synagogue. And it's apparent that the council agrees because Luke immediately documents the actions that follow. They chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas to go back with Paul and Barnabas to deliver the letter. And I think James and the other apostles elders and elders, they're wise to handle it this way. This isn't just Paul and Barnabas going back with the answer or going back with a letter that came from who knows where. No, it's two delegates from the council with the letter, along with Paul and Barnabas. And the letter itself validates it. It acknowledges that the original group, those original people that had came up, were not acting on the authority of the Jerusalem church. And it does validate the authority of Judas and Silas, in verse 27, to confirm by word of mouth what they wrote. Then the, the letter, again, references, makes reference to the intervention of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God that unified this council not to burden this church with anything beyond these four things that we just covered. And it includes, concludes with remark, remarks that they'd be good to avoid these things. They'd be better served to avoid these things. So now I, serve, I, I shared earlier that there's a great amount of scholarly interpretation on the meaning of the four things. But you know, what's, what's really significant to me is the reaction of the believers in Antioch it shows that they certainly understood the meaning completely and that they were glad for its encouraging message. So God steps in, steps through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, and he unites this council at this critical moment, and the mission of, the God, the mission of God to these Gentiles is strengthened, not threatened. So as we consider you know, what happened at the Jerusalem council, I'd like for us to think about how we currently might identify with some of the characters that are participating in this council as, as we seek to do mission today. Now, I think if you walk the road of a disciple of Jesus, there's going to be times you find yourself identifying with and having things in common with each of these characters. So let's start with the Judaizers, okay? You know, at first glance, they might be an easy lot to pick on, right? However, when you take a deep look into your heart, you ever catch yourself, like the Judaizers, caring more about wanting to correct the behavior or customs, maybe of those who are new to Christ, or other, other brothers and sisters that are really cultural issues and not biblical issues. Perhaps you're disturbed at how their, their actions reflect on your faith community, your church. Or is your primary feeling joy over the fact that the mission of God is bringing unique people who were once far from God into his kingdom? Now, when I think about the Judaizers... God reminds me that over the years I've often acted the same way when it comes to my expectations of how a Christian should behave and act at church or in worship. You know, I may hear or see some things that I, I think are inappropriate, but then God often reminds me that, you know, when I first came to Christ, my antics were probably equally as disturbing, if not more so, to others. You know what? But there's hope for us Judaizers. There is. There's hope. I think that living in a diverse community forces us to accept and submit to the missional directions and the missional decisions 
that are made. And that intervenes in our lives, and it makes us grow. See, now, when I read verse 22, that the apostles and the elders with the whole church made this decision, I get the idea that the Judaizers, the party of Pharisees, were in the room. I don't think they just spoke their mind and left. So when James facilitates the writing of this letter that includes the words, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, I think that us includes at least some who were from the party of Pharisees. They're part of the Jerusalem church as well. And I think they were in agreement to change their minds and submit to this group's decision. So secondly, how about Peter? I got to confess that I often feel much like Peter, pulled in different directions by people of influence. You see, Peter had very clear direction from God in Acts 10 that he was free to eat anything and fellowship with the Gentile believers that God has called clean. Yet it's apparent from what Paul writes in Galatians 2 that Peter later succumbed to the, the pressure of those who came up to Jerusalem. And unfortunately, with Paul's help, Peter got his bearings again. And by the time we get to the council, the, the, the Jerusalem council, Peter gets another chance. And he spoke very important truth that impacted this decision. So thirdly, how about Paul and Barnabas? You know, perhaps you've been where they, where they were. I mean, these two are right in the middle of a harvest, right? A lot of fruit being born. Only to have the church or some other authority create confusion with unnecessary restrictions. Maybe you can identify how, how it feels to be frustrated by those who would rather criticize or correct your mission rather than participate in it. But, you know, Paul and Barnabas show us patience and submission as well. If you want to know Paul's true feelings about the matter of meat sacrificed to idols, all you got to do is read 1 Corinthians 8 or Romans 14. Romans 14. It's pretty clear he's got a different opinion. Yet Paul submits to the decision by this council for the sake of unity and advancement of the mission. And i got to inject one additional comment about Paul. You know, we read Paul, we get, we understand that he's all over salvation by grace alone. And he makes strong statements about the law and circumcision in Romans 2. But we're going to see that next week that Paul has young Timothy circumcised before the second missionary journey out of sensitivity to the Jews that live in the area. Now, why would he do that? This is a teaser. Come back next week and find out. Finally, what about James? Perhaps now, or in the past, or in the future, you're going to identify with James. You're a leader. You have to facilitate a decision. Perhaps you're caught between the strong influence of culture, tradition, and the customs of the past that seem to conflict with the, missional, the current missional movement of God. And you have to make a decision. And I mean, James gives us a great leadership example of how to facilitate the resolution of a conflict. You know, as a leader, he listens to all sides. He gives time to those who value tradition and culture. But in the end, however, James mentions three things that have the greatest influence on his decision. They are the actual testimony of those who are out there doing the mission work, two, reconciling it to the word of God, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. James writes in verse 28 that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes the Spirit just has to drag this New Testament church into change for the sake of the advancement of the mission, to kick them out of the nest, as it were. And I think, once again, in Acts 15, this is the case. And James acknowledges that it's the Spirit of God that has moved in this decision. 
So I think if you walk with Christ long enough, you're going to easily identify with all of these characters at, at some point or another in your life. And I think God's word is just a, just a tremendous gift to us in many ways. I think this story is fabulous. It's a useful model of not only how to resolve conflict within a community, but it's a reminder that when we're making decisions that the mission and the grace of the gospel of truth must always trump tradition or cultural values. And in the end here, when you think about it, concessions are made by the Judaizers, by Peter, by Paul and Barnabas, by James, and even the Gentiles in Antioch, and they're all done for the sake of mission. And they're made at this critical council because through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, the, the unity of the gospel preserved the unity of the church. The unity of the gospel preserves the unity of the church. You know, ECC family, may that be the same for us today as we do mission together. So question, you know, the ultimate intervention of the Spirit of God happens to us individually when we submit to Christ by placing our faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit intervenes in the first place that even makes it possible for us to come to faith. And if you're with us this morning or, or you're watching online, and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, as the one who can intervene into your life and transform you, and you'd like to, well, if you're here, I'd like to talk to you, but if you're watching online, I, I invite you to click on the virtual communication card that you're going to find in the upper right-hand corner of our streaming page, and you can check a box there that I would like to know more about what it means to follow Christ. Or if you're watching on the Facebook page and you're in the comment section, you can like that comment that you see in the lower right-hand corner. And one of us will get back to you. We would love to share with you. So would you pray with me?